The following podcast is a Dear Media production. This is Amanda Hirsch from the Not Skinny But Not Fat podcast. You might know me from Not Skinny But Not Fat on Instagram, where I spend my time talking about reality TV, celebrities, everything happening, and pop culture every Tuesday, okay? I also talk to some of our favorite celebs and reality TV stars. We talk about what's going on. Tune in every Tuesday and just feel like you're talking with your best friends in your living room. Welcome to You're Gonna Love Me, the podcast where we open the eyes, the ears, and the hearts of anyone who has judged or been judged. Well, hopefully. I'm your host, Katie Maloney. Greetings, gentle people. Welcome back to an all new episode. I am incredibly excited for my episode today, for my guests today. I'm a little nervous. I'm already fangirling my tits off. I don't want to bomb this episode. My guest today has been in a movie I've watched, no lie, hundreds, hundreds of times. It's iconic. It's like the the movie of our generation, by far the most quotable movie ever. But today I have on the incredibly talented and hilarious Daniel Franzese. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you so, so much. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's nice to be here. I'm so happy to meet you. Oh, my goodness. All right. As I just said in the intro, I'm a huge Mean Girls fan. Has anyone ever told you that? <laughs> no, I don't get that at all. <laughs> I'm wondering, are you able to be as big of a Mean Girls fan as the rest of us? Or is it like you can't quite get on that? I appreciate it a lot. And I, and I think it's funny and I like a lot of it. But I understand the fandom because I was an insane fan over the movie Grease. And as a matter of fact, one of the only times in my life I was ever starstruck was when I ran into Eugene from Greece, the actor Eddie Eason. And I ran into him in like a Whole Foods and my legs wobbled and I couldn't speak. And so like, I get it. Like, so now when people feel that way, I just want to usher them out of it and make them feel comfortable because I understand I'm a super fan. So when someone's a super fan of that, I get it. Do you have crazy like fan encounters where they're just like, oh my God. And they start quoting the movie to you like crazy. Yeah, I can handle that. The quotes I can handle because I'm like, okay, what else? What else? What else? What do you got? What do you got? I imagine like you walk down the street and they're just like, you go, Glenn Coco. <laughs> I get a few of those, um, especially if I'm not in uh, like a big city, you know, like smaller cities, they geek out a little bit more. The weird part for me is the crying. Like if someone cries, like, and they can't handle it and they cry that I get really, I'm like, why are you crying? Like, it's okay. And then they like, I, you know, nostalgia for a lot of people, we all have trauma, right? Yeah. But like nostalgia is something that is very special to people with trauma because it's already packaged. It's already a good memory. They already have good things attached to something like that. And therefore it'll never be taken away from them. So it means a lot to them. So a lot of times people with trauma, when they're nostalgic about something positive and then they have an interaction with somebody or something that has to do with that thing, it brings up like a happy cry because it was because the movie itself could be a safe space. I completely identify with that because I feel like I, I deal with a lot of PTSD. So sometimes I really lean in on kind of that time in my life where it was simpler 
And, you know, whether it's like listening to music or leaning in on like movies or shows that I watched, you know, and, you know, Mean Girls, it came out when it was spring, like right before I graduated high school. It was a movie that, you know, everyone of, you know, my age group and everything could like fully see themselves in and identify with, even if it was sensationalized in terms of like girl world or high school politics. But I think you know, so many people of that age just really gravitate toward it. When you were filming the movie, did you, did, did you understand, did anyone understand like what it would become? I think that when I read it, um, before I was even cast, I had thought that it was like the funniest script I had ever read. I mean, cause I laughed out loud so much. And <laughs> yeah. I think Euro trip is probably the only other movie that I have laughed out loud, like while reading hysterically, like I couldn't wait to do it. Every line that Damien has is funny. And like, I was like, oh my God, like every scene I've got something good to drop. Like, so it was very exciting for me, but I don't know if you could really anticipate the internet like blowing up and Twitter blowing up and memes being invented and all of these things that sort of took us to like the stratosphere, like of a place that it's like, you can't do it on purpose, you know, unless you're like a big tentpole movie, like like a Star Wars or something, you can't like make sure that you're going to be that big. It has to just happen on its own phenomena. Totally. But like, wow. I mean, do you think back and like wish that you could have done something differently or like... Oh my God, I would have done so many things differently, especially coming out of the closet. Like I would have been out then. Like there's so many things that I would have done differently. As far as like my performance in Mean Girls, you know, I always tell, I coach acting sometimes and I tell my students that you're never going to like yourself fully in a movie because, because once you finish the movie, you have the experience of that movie plus like a year behind you of growth that you're going to be better when the movie comes, by the time the movie comes out, you'll be a better actor just by the experience of filming the movie. So it's like, you can only really judge your performance from like the day you auditioned, but I like everything I do in that movie, except for one line. There's one line that bothers me a little bit. Which one is it? It is the line where I say uh, at Spring Fling, I'm like, don't forget to vote for your Spring Fling King and Queen people. These a-holes will represent you for a full calendar year. And I'm like angry. And, you know, I got the note from Tina not to make it angry, but I really wanted to because I loved like John Waters movies and Parker Posey. And when it was like, people were just angry for no reason. And I felt that energy in that line. But I, in retrospect, when I watch it, I don't think that I would, that Damien would have been angry in that moment. If anything, maybe bored, but, um, I should have taken that note, but there were other notes that I got that I ignored that ended up fine in the movie. Like, like, um, that she doesn't even go here. They wanted me to do it in my normal tone of voice. And I wanted to do it high pitched because I was pretending to be a girl and the Hugo Glenn Coco, they didn't want me to make a Santa voice because they were afraid that the audience wouldn't realize it was me. And I was like, they're going to know it's me. We just, in the scene before this said, I'm doing it. You know, there were certain things that I held ground on that I'm glad I did, but that was one that maybe I could have let go. I mean, I think Damien is easily one of the most like favorite characters from that movie. I would argue and say he's the best. No, I'm just <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, no honestly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everyone, everyone is so good on it, like on their own. I mean, just, I do think, a, I'm not saying that I'm the best actor, but I do think that Damien is the most problematic character in that movie as written without, before I even portrayed it. Like 
everybody's really a problematic character in there. And I feel like Damien is the one who's the most normal. 100%. <laughs> I mean, it, relatively speaking now, but who were you most excited to work with? I mean, besides Tina Fey, obviously. I was really excited to work with all of the people from SNL because SNL had always been like a major influence on me. Uh, that was like really exciting. As far as the young people, I think I didn't really know any of them except Lacey Chabert, who I had already done a movie with. We did this movie called the hometown legend, like, like four or five years before. And so it was nice to reconnect with her and work again with her. I thought that was really cool. Cause I think she might've been the first time I ever worked with someone again. Right. And it's nice to have like, familiarity on set like you have a buddy. yeah just somebody that I knew already you know and in the movie that we were in before she was like the star of it and I kind of was like this small part and now we were now it's like hey we're peers you know and it kind of felt a little easier for me to interact yeah I've listened and read interviews that you've done you know since the show obviously and you know you weren't necessarily uh publicly or really out of the closet when you did the movie and so now that you are so such a huge activist for the LGBTQI community, you know, what did Damien mean to you back then? And what does he mean to you now? I had originally told my agents that I wanted to hold off as long as I can on playing a gay character because my whole thing was like, if I could play a whole bunch of straight people and, you know, become famous playing straight people, then when I play gay, I'll be like, well, look at what I've already done kind of thing, you know? So that was sort of like, I guess, a strategy. Also, like I had thought that a lot of the stuff I was reading that was gay or queer was making fun of a gay person. It wasn't including them in the storyline. And when I had read this role, Damien was described in the script as Damien is probably fat, but definitely gay. And I thought that that was like, so cool that he was described as someone who was like chubby and and queer because unless it was a passing by joke you would never see someone chubby or queer in a, in any movie so this was like wow and then not only that but he was a lead role with an arc and he didn't get like you know shoved in a locker or his head dunked in the toilet it was really cool to see him just be able to like breathe and live like a life without fear even my high school people don't see it because i was very popular i guess in the term of like people knowing me and I was well liked perhaps I wasn't like invited to every party or, or what have you, you know, in high school. But, and I felt a lot of fear in high school. I felt fear walking into the locker room or certain hallways, or I felt fear around certain kids. I felt fear sometimes taking the bus in middle school that I was going to get beat up and did get beat up sometimes. So to see Damien live without fear and not have even a moment, like the worst thing they said about him was that he was too gay to function. And it was something that his best friend said about him. And it was kind of like a, a private joke that they were appropriating. It didn't feel like something that was used to abuse him. So to me, like, it was kind of like so major. I was like, I have to play this because it moves the envelope. You know, it pushes the boundaries. Like, and I was just like, so that's what gave me the courage to do it in spite of my own fear of my own acceptance. Right. I mean, because there hadn't been a character like that before. Because I do, I do feel like all of the you know queer or gay you know characters that we see were were like that sort of quintessential. The only identifier was that they were just like the gay friend or the gay guy or the you know they didn't have a personality behind it. Even stuff that came after, like she's the man, you know, had like a gay friend, but he was like worked at a hair salon and he was like played by a straight guy and well, but like still, it was like. 
all these things that I was seeing, like when these roles would come up after Mean Girls, that for me to audition, it would be like he wears high heels and a feather boa, and it was almost like they were they were like every gay person had the joke was that they were non-binary before we knew what that was. It was like they knew they were trying to like make fun of gay people by portraying them as somebody who is non-binary. It didn't make sense. It didn't fit in the code of what I thought to be like reality, you know, like, and every gay storyline is sad. Even like, I remember like there's a great gay role played by a straight guy in reality bites, but he was sad that his dad didn't accept him and he was crying and everybody, you know, all of our stories were sad in movies. Like I never, this was like just a happy, funny, he was there. He was cool. You know, he got to sing at the talent show. And even though the guy kind of threw a shoe at him when <laughs> it was just funny, it didn't feel like gay bashing. It just felt like heckle, heckling. And then like when it was thrown back, it was, he was like, screw you. I'm beautiful. No matter what you say, like it was, at least he had an answer that kept him on top and kept him confident and kept him going. And I think that that is something that my fan base had really latched onto. Like I came out in 2014 because I had a letter around the 10th anniversary of Mean Girls that said, you know, I don't know if you're gay or not and it doesn't matter. But when I was in eighth grade, I was tortured for being a sissy and beat up for being chubby. And then your movie came out and then I went into ninth grade and on the first day of my freshman year, the popular senior girls were like, Hey, you're like Damien, come sit with us. And he was like, thank you for making me popular for like four years of high school and giving me something in media that I could look at and identify. And for me to learn that lesson as an actor, as, as all the things that I am to learn that lesson so early on in my career, it's really influenced a lot of my decisions on what I take and what I do and how I act and, and where I go. And because even when I do uh, my standup at colleges, I have an AMA afterwards. I don't really do an AMA when I am, you know, doing clubs, but like when I'm, when I'm doing colleges, I always tell the students, I'm like every single fucking thing that I got made fun of for in my life. They call me fat. They call me queer. They called me, you know, too tall. They called me too ethnic. They called all these things that they said about me are reasons that I cash paychecks today. So <laughs> <laughs> it was literally like, take all of my pain points and make them paid points. Oh my God. <laughs> you have me like, my eyes are like watery up. I wanted to cry a second ago. And then you I think it's so like special, like just how you've like touched people, which is in that way with your art, you know, and been just sort of this like beacon and light for people. I try to continue it, you know, with looking, I played a sexualized bigger queer male and I've taken roles like falling for angels on Amazon, which like paid nothing. And like, you know, it was like a lot of days like for nothing, but like it was because the character was sexualized and I'm like, how could I keep doing things? Because I know that that's a big deal too. You know, um, a lot of guys that were and are attracted to bigger guys had some sort of bigger guy sexual awakening, like from something on TV, like James Gandolfini, you know, James Gandolfini fucks in Sopranos. Yeah. You know, like, like, <laughs> he is sexy. Yeah. Like, I mean, he'd be like, in, you know, like, and there's just people doing stuff like that. And it, and that like made people go, Oh, this could be attractive. This isn't sexy. Instead of it being like, wah, wah, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, every time I saw a big guy on TV, it like, it was like a commercial for the thigh master. Like, do you want a belly like this? Or, you know, and, <laughs> and a lot of the people that I was seeing didn't even have bellies as big as mine. And it was like, well, if that guy's the before picture, what am I, you know, if that person's this, what am I? And it always made me feel other. And I think that by exposing that, by letting people see different kinds of people, differently abled people, people of color, people of size, like sexualized, it makes people kind of go, that could be kind of hot, you know? So I think that that has been like a big thing in my life. And 
I know it works because of the response I get. Uh, when I did HBO's looking, I had a fan write me and he said, listen, I'm not being rude because this is a fan letter. He was like, but I, you know, saw Mean Girls like when I was a kid, like a million years ago, and I don't really remember it. And I have no idea what an, what an Eddie Bear is. That's the name of my character in looking. And he was like, <laughs> he was like, but this guy came up to me three months ago on the dance floor and he's way out of my league. And he goes, oh my God, you're just like Eddie Bear. And we've been dating for three months and I don't know what the hell you're doing, man, but keep fucking doing it. You know? And I was like, wow, like that is it. Like I'm in this because it's so fun to do art and I love being a performer and I'm an entertainer in every sense of the word. Like I love to do stand up and I love to do musical theater and I love to do storytelling and poetry and, and I have a podcast and I'm on clubhouse doing like a radio show. And I mean, I, anything I could do to perform I'll do, but it's like, I legit love the impact that it has and like what that comes like, you know, I think fame should be a byproduct of your art and not because you went to the club on Friday, you know? Like, yeah. Have you always been performing? Has that been something when you were the time, time when you were young? Absolutely. Since a baby, like I, my my grandfather had 12 brothers and they all lived in the same block in Brooklyn. What? And Damn. I was kind of like, they all had kids, which was my mom's generation where she grew up with all of her cousins as her best friends, which is not normal. Imagine like 13, you know, siblings all having children and then all those children all going to school together. They were like a brood, you know? <laughs> and then like so most of them stayed on the block. A lot of them moved away to Jersey or Staten Island or Florida. because That's what you do when you leave New York. A lot of them stayed, you know, and when I was born, I was like one of the first kids of that generation. So when I learned my ABCs, I would do what I affectionately call the coffee table circuit. Like I would go from like, you know, my grandma and grandpa's to my uncle Mikey's to my aunt Nina's to my uncle Giuseppe's to my aunt Roro across the street to the Chiraldi's, like all the, the neighbors. Tour. <laughs> it was the tour. I would like do a circuit. So all I had to do was like learn a lyric of a song and everyone would be like, listen to this. And then I would be on everybody's coffee table. So Early on, I realized that like by being performative, I could make people feel good. And I think that that's what it's always been about. And you've always had this like just confidence in you? No. No? People look at me and they go, whoa, like, how do I get like that? How do I, yeah. how do I get on stage and not know what the hell I'm going to say in the last minute and help somebody, you know, and like get a, if someone needs someone and they're like, here, here's a mic, I'm fine. And then also like I could take my shirt off at the pool with like, I'd not even care. And like, there's so many people that look at me those things I had to work through. Those are things I had to work towards. Those are things that I said, I can't do this. How can I? And how many times can I try this or classes I could take or people I could talk to or read a book about, or, I mean, I had a soul search to find a lot of the keys to unlock a lot of those things, but you know, it's like a video game. When you take a tutorial level and you level up all of a sudden, it's like nothing. When you go back and look at some of that stuff, I'm like, I can't believe I was afraid to take my shirt off at the pool. And now I have like this sick tan. <laughs> like, it's like, you know what I mean? It's like, how do you, how does it happen? Like, you know? And I, I think that again, it's like exposing, like I've had a, like a lot of people talk to me, men, especially, but women too, but men, especially about the fear of taking their shirt off by the pool or being comfortable in their own skin and, and like how to get there. And I'm just like, you know, maybe if you take your shirt off, like a kid might giggle, but then maybe their mom would be like, don't do that. And then maybe that would normalize it for them. They're not going to giggle all summer. Maybe they'll giggle the first time and then you keep going to the pool. And then by the third time, they're just used to it. And maybe you can save that little kid from treating somebody like shit when they're older, or maybe even make them say, that's not so bad. Maybe I could be attracted to the soul of this person because I've seen that it, it's just exposing it. It's like, like being visible. If anyone that's listening or, or you or anybody, like I tell this to everyone, if you're a creator of any type, 
whatever there is out there that you're missing that you're like, that's not really like, me. like, okay, that's a Latino person, but it's not the way I live. Or that's like a girl, but it's not how I would act. Or that's a big person, but it's not how I see myself go out and create something that is you because there's another version of you waiting to see that, to feel comfortable in their own skin. Wow. That is incredibly inspiring. Like I'm like listening to you and I'm like, yes, I needed some things, you know, sometimes like you just need to hear something. Yeah. You know, we were talking about mercury Gatorade where everything goes wrong. I feel like today something went right because I needed to hear that. I, I struggle on a daily basis with those kind of things. So like hearing someone just be like, fuck it, get out there and do it is really great. So everyone listened to that. If you think about anything anyone's ever told you that was a reason you couldn't do something, like it doesn't matter what it was, but like, I mean, I was told I couldn't be in like my musical theater uh, Glee club in college. I toured because they said they don't really want overweight people in it there. And I was like, what? And they were like, they were like, yeah, they were like, you know, they want to be representing the school. So they wanted to be like a perfect looking group of people. And I went straight up to the director and I was like, is this what? true? You, you don't want overweight people in it. And they're like, well, in the past. And I'm like, well, I'm going to try anyway, just so you know. And I ended up getting in it. So like, maybe they were a little pissed that I got in it at first. I don't know. But like for years later, when you look at the pictures of all the glee clubs, there's the chubby guy. So now the next chubby kid that for years at my school that wanted to try out for that glee club can look at the pictures and say, well, they had a chubby guy. That's not going to stop me. Like when they say that the only ceiling you give yourself is yourself, it's kind of like that. Like you have to like, and a lot of the trailblazers will get the arrows and not the land. It's not always easy. Like, you know, I know like I complain all the time that Ryan Murphy doesn't have bigger sexualized guys in any of his gay projects. Like, or like I watch movies about HIV and AIDS and, uh, and there's no fat people. And I'm like, what did they not help? you know, like with the AIDS crisis, what did they not get AIDS? Like, it's all just like gorgeous guys with abs talking about it, you know, and telling our history. And I'm like, I understand that. And maybe that might piss off someone like Mr. Murphy or someone because I'm saying it, but it also might, it might make them think and it might make them down the line, hire a big guy. And it may not be me because I'm the one that pissed them off, but I'll, but it opens the door, you know, or whatever. I don't know. That's been the problem with like a lot of like, you know, dumb industry shit that, you know, a lot of people have like, Thankfully, I think it's shifting and changing, but you know, even the fashion industry and, you know, these horrific beauty standards of size that has just plagued everyone. It's all over social media of just not normalizing what normal bodies look like or bigger bodies that, you know, bodies come in all different shapes and sizes. We're still living in a time where fat people won't sell you toothpaste. Do you know what I mean? They'll sell you antacid. We're living in that kind of a time. So it's like, we have to, do those kind of things we have to say like well you know i'm still going to audition for the toothpaste commercial like and i think it's the, the same thing we're going through right now with like all these straight actors playing queer roles it's like i get it kate blanchett like everyone should be able to play everyone that they want to play but not right now not in a time where the marginalized community like is unemployed not right now where i'm looking for some kind of star vehicle that can maybe one day get me an emmy or maybe one day get me an oscar nomination Cause that's, I want the same, the same goals as every other actor. Right. But then like the prestige, the prestige films that come out that have gay people are playing played by straight roles or like this new movie coming out the whale with their Nan Frosky is casting Brandon Frazier as a 600 pound queer man. Like it's kind of, yeah. And I'm kind of like, it's just so interesting to me because like as an overweight queer man, no, I know my experience better than anybody else. And here comes a role that is probably going to get someone nominated for an Oscar and I can't even audition. So it's like, it's just this weird time that we live in and it's going to take our straight allies to sort of sit down and step back. It's going to take networks 
to budge and it's going to take directors to say, I don't care. This character is going to be black. This character is going to be fat. This character is going to be queer. This character is going to be Italian or whatever. And like, just like keep, keep, keep their foot down. The people with the lived experiences. That makes, I mean, I get an actor's role is to be able to like put on different hats. That's part of the skill of it all. But we're like, just not given that chance though. You know, I tried to cast a queer film this year. It got, it got killed in 2020 by COVID. We never ended up making the movie yet, but I was casting a lot of queer actors and you know, a lot of them aren't as skilled as some of the straight ones because they haven't had an opportunity to cut their teeth or, been given the roles or even audition for some of these prestige kind of things that it's just difficult to find the, the talent still. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have started, I mean, I know it's been COVID, so it's like, I don't know if this is a sensitive subject, but the, um, the comedy show that you, that you started with LGBTQ comics was called what West Hollywood brunch. I've had a few, I've had quite a few. Um, I do house of Coco. I do, Famous People Comedy Hour. I have like different stand-up shows that I do. Yeah, you're doing a lot. <laughs> I'm well, see, here's the thing. They're like, again, be the thing that you need, right? In that space. Like I, I when I started stand-up, I didn't have a queer person that was like, hey, come on my show. Let, let's give you some stage time, you know? And so um, a lot of what I do is um, I try at every, I have one at pretty much every show, every place in LA, like every major club, I have a show that I try to hire queer performers because they need stage time. And, you know, we've never had a gay male headliner. We've had Ellen and we've had Rosie and we've had uh, Margaret Cho who's by, we've had different kinds of people in the LGBTQ spectrum, but never a gay man. You know, we even had non-binary like Eddie Izzard, right. But we've never had somebody who could sell out like Kevin Hart, like sell out like Madison Square Garden. And it, or is that because gay men aren't funny? I don't think so. Like uh, I did some of the funniest men I know are gay. So but, but a lot of them have been afraid to do stand up because it's never been a safe space. It's been a place where they've been thrown apart or made fun of, or the, the audience is usually straight. So we're trying to change that. You know, there's like a whole movement of, you know, there's Mateo Lane and Matt Rogers and uh, Bowen Yang. And um, I could go on and name like tons of great, Justin Sayer, tons of awesome, great standups that are sort of moving that thing forward, you know, to try to do that. So I may not be the headliner that's going to sell at Madison Square Garden one day, but I might find him and, and I might give him five minutes. That would be amazing. I just, I love that you are using, you know, your platform. I don't know, but just to give that space to people and, and pave that path that, you know, hasn't been before because it, it is bullshit. I hope it, I mean, I, I would love to see that shift happen. And I hope, I mean. The shift will happen when uh, straight people take a step back and say, hey, wait a minute, there's no people of color on this stage. Like if we're going to do the show next month, let's add someone. Or, hey, there's no queer people, let's add them. You know, like there's no women. Like like when they start noticing where there's a lacking and they start speaking up on our behalf because they're the ones with the power. Like they're the, you know, so it's like the, the fastest way to get something you want is to be grateful for what you have. And I'm, I'm so grateful to have the stage time and I would like the opportunity to have more. So I give it away. Well, I have a show at flappers. That's like monthly. It's a comedy club in Burbank. And, and, and at that place, like, you know, the owner is my college agent. It's like a home club for me and I could do a lot of things there and I could have my own one hour show every month, but instead I break it up. So where I'm only doing 20 minutes and I give the rest of the time to other comments because that's how it's going to, that's how I'm going to grow. That's how they're going to grow. That's amazing. I really miss comedy shows. I know. Well, we're doing stuff on zoom. There is stuff going on and there's a lot of great stuff on clubhouse. Clubhouse is really kind of popping right now. 
Yeah, I, I joined Clubhouse, but I'm still trying to get a feel for like what it is and how it works. So I'm going to have to get more involved in all, in all that and figure it out. But I think you're hilarious. I went on YouTube and I saw you were doing like your Italian mom says videos, which are, right. so, <laughs> yeah. are so accurately funny. And like, I think it's just, just your mom, like she, she probably loves that, right? Oh, she loves it. And my stand-up's like that too. I mean, I do TikTok as her and I do stand-up with like as her and like, it's just so much fun. Um, I'm still doing some stand-up because it's open here in Florida. So I'm doing Miami improv on April 14th. <laughs> it's like a different world in Florida. I feel like there it's bad and it's good. Like I could see why, you know, there's a lot of like, it's fresh open air on the, on the, on the beach, you know, and like it rains three times a day. Maybe the air is clean. I don't know the logic, but people seem to be a little more uh free here you know but i've done a lot of socially distant opens you know there's nobody close to the stage everybody like you know the audience wears masks so it's like just you know trying to do something you know i mean you gotta get creative and gotta pivot and gotta find something new i have a new podcast called yes jesus which is about the i was gonna ask next about that yes yeah it's about the intersectionality between queer sexuality and judeo-christianity and um i wouldn't be doing that if i was busy like so it's like, I found a, like, I mean, I'm, I wanted to, and I was going to do it anyway, but we were going to try to shoot like a year in like, like two weeks or something. You know what I mean? Instead, I get to do it every week. I, if I had all this extra, if I didn't have this extra free time, I might not be able to work on that new project. And now it's something I care about dearly. And we're in season two. No, I love it. I was listening to it this morning and it's just, it's really positive and really uplifting. And you do like prayer requests and like scriptures of the day. And it's just like, it's a very like feel good podcast. So it's on Spotify. Yes. It's not everywhere. Podcasts are. Yeah. I was Apple, everywhere. Spotify. Yeah. yeah. I was listening on Spotify. So everywhere you listen, it's, Y A S S Jesus. You should all know how to spell Jesus. Yes, Jesus. So everyone should go listen to that. Wait, there's one thing I had to like mention. So I was on, t I, I saw a TikTok video. You might have seen this. It's having to do with Mean Girls. You know, people have all kinds of like theories. So they were talking about something that happened kind of in the end versus the beginning, where they were talking about how, you know, Regina George had called Janice Ian a lesbian. She told everyone that she was a lesbian. And then later on, Janice says that she is Lebanese. Lebanese. Yeah. So the whole theory was that Regina didn't understand what Lebanese was. I definitely think that's part of it. Yeah. I thought that was just an interesting theory. I was like, oh. I wouldn't call it a theory. I would call it a buried joke. A buried joke. A buried joke. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was definitely on purpose. And it was something that was like, you know, meant to be like, oh yeah, that's funny. You know? I mean, but... I think that Regina George just was looking for a reason to act her out anyway. Be a bitch. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to wrap this up. Uh, this has been a lot of fun, but I want to end this with the rage text of the day. So Daniel, please share what your rage text of the day would be. I really hate when people put your private stuff with them, uh, even if it's like in a blind item on social media. Like I've had like arguments with people where they were like some friend said blah 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 and I know it's me or whatever and I'm just like you know you can come talk to me you know what I'm saying so I, blind items about people you know just so you can like get it out into the world I think it's lame like a subtweet or whatever they would call that yeah yeah like <laughs> like keep it keep it you know something such a baby and petty. Well, thank you so, so much. It was so nice to meet you. And this has been so inspiring. I feel like, I feel a little lighter now. I feel like I have um, 
I feel inspired. So thank you so much. I appreciate um, you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you. Well, to the rest of you, enjoy your, the rest of your day and be kind to yourselves until next time. Thank you so much for listening. Please make sure to subscribe, leave a rating and review. Follow along on social at Music Kills Kate and tune in next week for an all new episode.